I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Full Contact. In association with Mitsubishi Motors. Drive your ambition. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. Eddie Jones described England's game with Ireland at the weekend as their most important of the year and they, well they certainly delivered, they controlled the game from start to finish at Twickenham and they'll be looking to secure top spot in their Autumn Nations Cup group with a win over Wales this weekend. As for Ireland, head coach Andy Farrell always seemed upbeat despite the loss and he said afterwards that his side will take priceless lessons from Saturday's defeat, insisting the Irish are on track to contend for the Six Nations next year. Well, we'll be speaking to the former Ireland and Lions captain, Paul O'Connell, about how the Irish are progressing under Farrell and what needs to be done to narrow the gap to England. Well, we said last week that Wales' game against Georgia was a must-win, and well, they did just that. Wayne Pivak made 13 changes to his starting 15 um, to collect just his third win as head coach, and we'll be speaking to the former Ospreys' Head coach Sean Holly about that win for the Welsh and whether or not it's given them any chance over beating England this coming weekend. Emily Scarrett was the match winner for England's women over France with a last gasp penalty at Twickenham. Uh, the win sees England secure a 2 0 series win over the French and will be reacting to yet another win for Simon Middleton's side as we look back on the draw for the 2021 World Cup. As ever, we'll be answering your questions and we'll be taking a closer look at some of the work being done at grassroots level during the last seven months as part of the Mitsubishi Volunteer Recognition Programme. And this week, I'll be speaking to Steve Granger, the Rugby Development Director at the RFU, about the future of the game post-COVID and about the £135 million cash injection which the sport has received from the government last week. Alongside me today, I'm very pleased to say that we have the Harlequins Women's Captain, Rachel Burford. Uh, what are you doing at the moment? Oh, uh, well... I can read on your website. Just tell, tell everyone, it's your chance to tell everyone about your initiative. Um, so I've set up the Girls Rugby Club, um, formerly known as the Burford Academy, and basically it's about, it's an initiative to get more girls playing. It's about providing a platform and an opportunity for young girls to to find their way within rugby and um, but also more than that we want to have more of an education platform as well for for everybody that's involved in girls rugby to make sure that we keep progressing the game on and moving it forward and how do people get in touch with you how what's the what's the url um so we're we're all over social media so at girls rugby club and then our website is girlsrugbyclub.com so yeah come and check us out and it's it's an open platform we want people to come to us and work with us to to help support the girls rugby club well for example my daughter who's 12 she was on there the other day there was six six pages worth um of of, of people you know actually involved you know in chatting so it is a well there'll be a link in the uh, in the uh, podcast as well well, let's, let's start with England-Ireland. Uh, 18 
seven win. It was an impressive performance. I never really got the feeling that Ireland were really in touch with England. What would you take out of it? Yeah, I agree with that. I don't feel like England ever really felt under threat. They seemed in control the entire time. And and I think that was really telling at big moments where you would expect probably Ireland you know, in England's 22 to execute and England were coming up with penalties, turning the ball over at critical moments and it just never felt that Ireland could ever get a break and that's probably down to how hard England were working. Well, if you look at I mean, it's interesting, you look at the stats and you would have thought that England were under pressure most of the game and it doesn't, which just shows that the stats can't tell you everything. Because a number of tackles that were made, you would think that they'd been constantly under siege, and that wasn't the case. And yet, it is the case that they are making those. And it's becoming, this defensive effort is becoming very difficult for sides to get away from. Um, what, what, what do you make them, what, why, does it, why do you think it makes them so hard to break down? I think it's a, a number of things. I think firstly, their collisions are always dominant. So the, the majority of the time, they're double hits and they're hitting the, the attack back, which then allows the rest of the defensive line to be on the front foot and go with pressure on. But I just think it's it's a big mentality thing with them. I mean, you look at the likes of Atoji. There's like, an appetite, isn't there? Yeah, they're just so hungry. The, the, the desire to work, to, to be a Norse, to be constant. And it, it's no, there's no dip. There's no. It's for 80 minutes. They're relentless. They're getting off the line, and I think you know they've got so many players in that side that you know Sam Underhill. He's an absolute beast of a human. As soon as he gets off the line, makes a big tackle. You know Owen Farrell outside and wants to do the same. Marito. It's, everybody wants to follow up, and there's a real, you know, like you said, there's a real hunger amongst the whole team to to do that consistently for 80 well, minutes. Well, I, I told this story about, about Eddie Jones when he first came in. Long. This seems a long time ago now, and it, it, in rugby coaching terms, it probably is. And he put down bigs and logs, and people say, what, what do you mean bigs and logs? And he wouldn't explain it. He just kept ticking things, explained. And he eventually explained, big means back in the game, log means lying on the ground. <laughs> he said, and, you know, if you have a lot of logs, you're not in the game. You know, even if you are, even if you're not making a tackle, if you're down the blind side, someone might not run there because he sees another person. If you're not there to be the figure that's there, there's a gap. So, you know, he's worked... This is, this is not a new thing for Jones. He's been trying to get to this point yeah. for a long time. And I think he's finally got through to players that, um, that, that, that what, this aspect of the game... And he, funnily enough, uh, the way it was put to me by him, he said, look, why wouldn't you want to be the best at something where it requires no talent? This is just effort. Effort and fitness yeah. and desire. Exactly. And I think they, they actually use it in their own individual stats, you know, how long a player is on the floor for. So they're counting the seconds for you to get back up and into that game. And yeah, I think, you know, once you've got a player, well, a team that has that kind of desire to constantly be in the game, to be a difference. I think that's when you hear the England boys talking after as well, it's all about the whole team effort. Even when Johnny May is talking about his wonder try, it was all about the finer details, the small details that brought them the team performance. And I think that links back into that, you know, getting off the floor, getting back in the game. Even if you're in the backfield, you're covering a kick, you're there, you're going to be putting the opposition off. And, you know, all these little one percents, all these little extras do make a bigger, bigger difference. Well, let's go on to the Johnny May try because it was a it was a hell of a try. <laughs> and, I, and I was saying, you know, people say it was a straight run. I said, don't you understand how difficult it is to chip a ball forward when you're, when you're running at full speed, not only to get it in the right direction, but get the right weight so it doesn't either stop short and you have to gather it and get tackled, or it goes over the dead ball line. 
It's a really difficult skill, is that? And it was executed at absolutely full tilt. Yeah, it was. And, and like, I think for people's understanding, when you kick a ball, you're going to be standing on one leg to then regather your balance and to continue that top speed. I mean, it's un- it was an unbelievable try. And I think he actually had to kind of slice the ball between a couple defenders. So it wasn't just about just hitting it into a bit of open space. So, yeah, it was an unbelievable try. something that I think he's going to remember for a long time. Sean O'Brien was with us a few weeks ago and he was talking about Mario Itoji as a choice for the Lions captain. Now, um, put this out on social media and a lot of people were, were um, well, they disagreed, basically, pointing oh. uh, to Itoji's um, penchant for whooping things up around the breakdown, which, is, you know, I, he was England under-20s captain. I'm, I'm sure that's something that uh, would go by the by. But what, what do you think about uh, Sean's recommendation? Well, for me... What I like to see in a leader is them leading from the front. And I think that's what you get from Maratoji in terms of his, you know, when does he ever have a bad game? He's really consistent. He he is relentless for 80 minutes. You know, he's an absolute nause. And, you know, you need players like that to keep you going for the full 80s. Discipline record is good. Um, so for me, I mean, and he... I don't think he's a man of too many words, um, but he's like a Martin Johnson. When he speaks, people listen. So I think he could be a great option as a leader, maybe around that whole celebratory, um, you know, in terms of the values of the game, you know, maybe he'll he'll have a, a few words from his teammates about, you know, maybe bringing that down a notch at times. Well, there were mixed signals coming out of Ireland. Andy Farrell seemed happy enough with aspects of uh, his play, but there were... Uh, some sections of the Irish media, but particularly former head coach Eddie O'Sullivan, who were very critical. Why don't we um, ask someone who does know what he's talking about? It's the uh, former Ireland Alliance captain, uh, one of my BBC colleagues, Paul O'Connell's here with us. Hello, Paul. Hi, Brian. Mate, um, Andy Fowles saying one thing. Um, I, I question the motives sometimes of former coaches, of you, uh, when they just pop up like this. But where do you stand on on the debate that's raged in the Irish press this weekend over that particular performance? Well, I mean, Andy Farrell has to be as positive as he possibly can. He's talking to his players as much as he's talking to the media. You know, all those players are going to read what he says today and tomorrow. So he has to put, I suppose, a realistic positive spin on it. And I, I agree with him. I mean, a lot of the players are going to learn a lot from that game. It's, I think it's going to be a big marker for this Irish team that game so uh, listen I mean I think he's speaking to his own players as much as he's speaking to the media and mm. I don't know what they want him to say do they want him to say listen we were awful we're miles behind them he, he can't say that so and I agree with you on, on ex-coaches it's a you know when, when you do media you have to accept you put yourself in a tough position but Eddie O'Sullivan is to call it and sees it as well and, and Ireland are just being completely dominated by England at the moment um, you know we've fallen a long way behind them in 2018 we beat them in Twickenham to win a Grand Slam and since then the gap that's opened up is is, is very big um, I mean a lot of people uh, will remember Johnny Murray's try and it was an outstanding individual try but it came off yet again another uh, missed line out now um, as a hooker I have a particular interest in this because the hookers hookers always get blamed and the second rows who call them uh, never get blamed. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, as you know. Um, Look, it wasn't good in the final game of the revised Six Nations. You know, it it probably cost Ireland the game the the number of consecutive line-outs they did. And I I just wonder from a specialist perspective, 
if you can give us some some pointers to why 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 this is happening because it, it didn't it used to be one of Ireland's absolute basic strengths. Yeah, so uh, I mean, even that lineup we lost there, uh, England had seven men in the lineup. Ireland had had six. Now England didn't get anyone in the air, so it didn't really make a difference. But it still would. I suppose hinted a bit of a malaise in the Irish lineout. I mean, to me, the lineout caller should be walking into that lineout. He should be scanning how many, um, how many that England have, and he should be either informing the referee that so that he can get him, so that England can get one of the men out, or he should be informing the referee so that they can get the free kick for England having the numbers yeah. if Ireland don't win it. Whereas I don't think he really knew. And there is another lineout on the Irish line again where England have seven in the line-out and Ireland do a six-man. So that is, I suppose, practice and experience for James Ryan, who was calling the line-outs. He doesn't call the line-outs full-time for Leinster. Devin Toner does that job a lot of the time for Leinster. So it's practice for him. And, and you know, Ireland use a lot different line-outs to what Leinster used. When I played with Ireland, I used all the line-outs I used with Munster. The line-outs I was comfortable calling, the line-outs I was used to calling week in, week out. I had my bankers, I had line-outs I knew I could use when the weather was bad, I had line-outs I knew I could use when we might have lost one or two line-outs in a row. And a lot of the best line-out teams have that. So Victor Mackfield would have been the best line-out caller in my time. He used all the same line-outs as he used with the Blue Bulls. And England use all the same lineouts that Jamie George and uh, Mario Toge and George Cruz, when he was involved, would have used with Saracens. So you have that. It's a great, I suppose, comfort blanket to have that when things begin to go wrong, you, you're, you're calling calls that you're calling week in, week out, that you know work under pressure. So I think, you know, we have a young hooker as well. Ronan Keller is definitely a man for the future, but... You know, his second cap is 23 years of age. And he's a very dynamic, powerful ball carrier. But this is part of his game he needs to work on. And uh, I thought some of the calls at the weekend were poor, and I felt they didn't look after him. But some of them were quite good. You know, the first line-out overthrow that, that Ireland lose, uh, no one goes up beside the man at the back of the line-out. It's a really good call. You know, the caller's job is to give you, uh, I suppose, a throw where you can throw it where there's no one competing beside you. But I think some of the calling uh, will have to be addressed and it's it's a learning process for James Ryan. I mean, I would have been there. The biggest days of my career as a line-out caller were the days where we lost three, four, five line-outs. And they're the days that mark you. They're the days you learn from. You make changes to how you prepare. And uh, hopefully this happens with James Ryan. See what? See, it was all right because I used to call the calls. So if I was having a hard time, I threw the one which I knew I could get. Um, and, and I presume, is there an override call? Can the can the hooker say to the call, you know, the lineup caller, look, I know I don't want to throw that one. I don't want to throw the long, the long, you know, yeah. five, six or whatever. Give me, a, give me, a, give me a, a two or a four, four, you know, four straight up down. On. Is there an override? Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. I think what can happen is that hookers should have favourite calls. And, you know, sometimes the back line want a full line out. They want a seven-man line out and they want it near middle back. And, you know, you need a line out caller that can say, no, I can win a five-man and I can win it near the front. You can do what you like with that. Because, you know, having the ball is pretty important. And, and 
you know, one of the most, I suppose, debilitating throws or losses is, is not when an opposition steals it and they tap it back and your scrum half is to go down on the ball. It's when you overthrow the line-out and it goes over the top of the line-out. Those ones are really, I suppose, debilitating and it gives the opposition a, a real opportunity to attack. But you need hookers that have an opinion. He, you know, he's only a young guy, Ronan Keller. I think he's about to turn 23 very soon. He's only a young guy. But you need hookers that are strong to be able to say no give me this one, this one, or this one. I don't fancy, you know, the other one. So, but he can only do that after the line-out. If you look at a lot of line-outs now, the hooker, the pack will huddle, and the hooker runs off, and he gets the ball, and he makes sure it's dry or whatever. He then stands in the line-out, and you'll see the loose head runs to the hooker. He gives him the call, and he goes back into the line-out. At that stage, it's too late for him to change. It's the next break in play where he has to go to the, he has to go to the line-up caller and he has to say, listen, I want to go to our banker balls. And, and you know, if they're, if they're, if they have a good working relationship and if the hooker is engaged in what he's doing, if he feels his job is more than just throwing in the ball, if he's, if he feels his job is contri- contributing to the calling process as well, he'll have, like, he'll have a few calls in the back of his mind that he'll be able to encourage the line-up caller to go to as well. And talking of young players, James Ryan, captain the side for the first time, just aged at 24. I mean, what did you make of his performance? And, and would you consider giving him the captaincy long term, given, you know, Sexton is now 35? Yeah, I think he's a, certainly a future Irish captain, given his age, given his quality as a player, given his, I suppose, his personality. He's quite a, a serious, focused, dedicated rugby guy. Um, but you do want to give him the job when he's in a position to be able to play really well himself. I'm not sure how many penalties he gave away. He gave away quite a few penalties um, and the line-out calling was poor. So it's very hard to captain the side when you are struggling at one of your primary roles. Um, so so it, it's maybe it's a learning process for him and it's maybe that it's something that can come down the line. But you know, it's very hard to captain the side when you're when you're struggling in 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 some of what you're doing, like he was the other day. Uh, Paul, just a final question. One of the most difficult things for Ireland is come at, uh, come at a really inconvenient time. You know, in the in the World Cup cycle, you know, there's, there's a significant amount of time to go till 23. Then you've got Johnny Sexton's age there, and you've got the the halfback pairing. You know, over 50, 60 times he he's played. You know, with with uh, with Murray and so on. At some point, they've got to make a decision. Are they? Is that going to be an an axis which they can build the twenty three on? Isn't it? And if it isn't, when do they go? You don't want to make revolutionary changes. It's a really difficult conundrum, isn't it? That the halfback one. Yeah, and listen, we have only four professional teams um, here. You know, we're not like in England or France or or in New Zealand or South Africa with, with, a, with a whole lot of players. You know, the playing population is quite small here. The professional playing population is about 140 players. You know, if you imagine that 20, 25 tens of those are injured at any, any one time, there isn't a massive pool of players to pick from. And Ireland were in a good position to prepare for Johnny Sexton's, uh, you know, retirement or, or whenever he does choose to retire. Paddy Jackson was being developed as a possible replacement. He, he's had his issues and his problems and probably oh, will play for Ireland again. Uh, Joey Carberry probably was 
a real bright future star for Ireland. The IRFU moved him from Leinster to Munster to make sure he would get playing time without half. He has a, a severe ankle injury where, where it's debatable about whether he will play again. So, you know, we, we, we're not the kind of country that has a load of, 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 of these players. So there's a really good player in Leinster, actually Ross Burns' younger brother, Harry Byrne, is in, is in Leinster as well. Munster of a few young out halves, Jack Crowley, Ben Healy, but they're a long, long way from being at the Owen Farrell or, or, or George Ford stage of, the, of their development. So um, it is a challenging position for Ireland, and they've been they've been unlucky in their development, you know, with some of the injuries they've had. But um, and it's so it's such a pivotal position. I mean, you look at the effect Farrell has in the game. I know he gives away a few, misses a few tackles from time to time. He, he, he gave away a few penalties late in the game, which allowed Ireland access into the game. But I, I was at the game on Saturday and you can hear him the whole way through the game, uh, motivating the players defensively, pulling the strings in attack. Um, you know, he, he sets such a high standard for the team that, you know, I think there's, it's a very common knowledge. He wants to be the best player in the world. The way he prepares, the way he trains uh, is incredible. So the out-half, you know, and all successful teams are, are built on a, on, a, on a very good out-half. Uh, you know, England under Johnny Wilkinson, Ireland in the early days under Roe McGarrow, Johnny Sexton most recently. So it's a very important position. But Ireland have other problems. I mean, the set-piece is, is a real killer for Ireland. Even you look at the first try yesterday, it came off a scrum penalty. England kicked to the corner. They get a mall. They get a penalty off the mall. They kick closer into the corner again, and they get another mall penalty. They get uh, they get advantage and they kick across field. So, you know, it isn't just the out half position for Ireland. It's set piece is becoming a real issue for them. And you know, it's an old school saying that, that around set piece and how important it is. But England show what I can do for you in a game. You know, if you can dominate the opposition line or if you can draw penalties from the opposition when you go to mall, if you can draw penalties from the opposition when you scrum, it's a very difficult game to play then for your opposition. And England have done that now more than once against Ireland. It happened to them in the World Cup final. It happened to Leinster against Saracens in the European Cup final. That set-piece issue for me as well is a, is a big issue for Ireland that needs to be resolved. Paul, always uh, great to speak to you. Thanks very much for taking the time. Um, see you again. Well, whenever, who knows when we'll when we'll be together again? But I look forward to it. Okay. Cheers, Brian. Take care. Well, for, uh, first win in six games for Wayne Pivak. Uh, it was important for him to get back to winning ways. Let's uh, discuss the eighteen uh, nil triumph over Georgia with uh, a regular contributor to. The podcast, uh, Sean Holly, the former Ospreys head coach. Hello, Sean. Hiya, Brian. How are you? Not too bad, mate. Look, Georgia didn't offer much threat going forward. Um, so, in certain ways, it's difficult to assess just how meritorious the the world's performance was. Apart from the win, obviously, which was very important. What 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 are they going to take you out of that game when they're heading to a much tougher uh, opposition uh, in the guise of England this weekend? Not a lot, Bright, to be honest. It was a pretty turgid affair. The um, the conditions weren't great down at Parker Scarlet. I suppose going into England, there's not a lot. You can read into it. Um, the benefits for Wayne Pivak were 
maybe to blood some of the younger players if you're looking in the longer term. Lewis Rissamit, of course, got his first try. Aaron Wainwright came back strong and uh, put a man of the match performance in. Johnny Williams started at 12. Elliot D went well at hooker. And also you had Jim Botham, of course, uh, making his first start. So they're the, they're the, the positives, along with uh, Kieran Hardy and Callum Sheedy at halfback, the young 9 and 10. In terms of overall performance, it's been uh, you know pretty much what we've seen from Wales this last six or seven games. You know, struggling in attack, only two tries against Georgia, who really didn't really enter into Wales's half, and Wales only had to make 90 tackles. So, you know, it, it's disappointing really, and I, we're all scratching our heads a little bit as to to what identity Wales have at the moment, and such a turnaround in such a short time since the end of Warren Gatland's reign. And we've been discussing what style of play Wayne Pivak is trying to implement on his Wales side over the last few weeks. As someone who has worked as a coach, what do you think he's trying to do and why do you think he has struggled a bit so far? Well, there's a lot uh, in that, Rachel. Um, He's trying to emulate what he did at the Scarlets, playing sort of a 1-3-3-1 pod system with his forwards across the field, trying to get, you know, your tip bricks and file toes in the 15-metre channels. Um, that's all very well when you're winning front football and you're winning your set piece. Wales have struggled in the set piece. The line hasn't been great. We lost four throws again on the weekend. The scrum was much better. Uh, Samson Lee, Wynn Jones coming in with Elliot D, you know, give us a bit more of a platform. But we've struggled really to get any sort of front foot. And I think, quite honestly, if we look at the Wales team, we've been lacking in sort of dynamic ball carriers. I was in awe watching England, particularly in the first half with the likes of Unipola and Cole carrying the ball. And, um, you know, our basic skills seem to have dropped down. So it's a real concern for us. We can't play that sort of style of rugby until we get some good go forward and front foot speed of ball. Um, and, and they're working on that. You know, Jonathan Humphreys, the forwards coach, is new in. Uh, they'll get better in that line out. Um, but it's a tall order this weekend because our possession is going to be limited. And that England defence against Ireland, well, they're just so physical and battered Ireland back. And don't forget, Ireland put 30-plus points on Wales just a few weeks ago. I'm not sure. I mean, the one three three one. I mean, it, it originally started with the All Blacks, didn't it? With Kieran Reid, you know, and uh, and the All Black hooker, whichever one they played, you know, out on different ones. But it, but this, you see, this is another thing. It also requires the outside the outside centres, the fullback and the wingers to know exactly what to do if the if the forward takes the ball into contact because he can't be a clearer, can he? So, you know, you've got inexperienced players who are, who are coming in trying to find their way in units as well, you know, in the back three or the centres, and then having to cover this and not knowing. So it's it's not quite as easy as saying, oh, we'll get this ball, and, and you know, he makes a decision as to what to do, because other people have to react off him and make sure that whatever decision he makes, you know, is a fruitful one. Yeah, you're 100% right, Bray. You know, the, the front fives tend to work between the 15s. They have a lot of work to do in carrying and cleaning out. So they have to be complemented by by the backs, as you rightly say. And reacting to that is very difficult. Of course, with the new interpretations at the contact area, the onus is on, you know, that winning that race to the ball carrier. And when you've got the likes of Curry and Underhill and co, Jamie George even over that ball very, very quickly at Toji, then it's really essential that, that Wales look to run into whatever spaces there are rather than run into faces. Now, you run into these big England guys and, you know, you're just offering an opportunity for turnover. And, you know, we've been slow to react as a front five. We don't really have those sort of dynamic front five ball carriers, which is why I think maybe the likes of Jake Ball will come back in into the fold alongside Alan Wynn. 
It's why they're looking at Wainwright and Jim Bolsom and these sort of fellas. But, you know, the backs have to play their part. And we haven't seen that. And, and we're finding it then difficult to regenerate four or five backs to counter attack, you know, on any sort of quick ball. And that's a real concern for Wayne Peaver because we're looking pretty ordinary at the moment. Uh, Sean, not many people will be expecting a Wales win this weekend. However, you know, it is on their, their patch. What do you think will be accepted as a good outcome? What a question, Bray. Uh, <laughs> I think, I, I think you know, we, Welsh, the Welsh public are looking for an improved performance. There's, there's no shortage of effort from the fellas, but the skill level seems to be low. Our fundamentals aren't what they should be. So I think we're looking for an improved level of performance and sustained phases of play and, and attack. I think his selection has got to show uh, a philosophy of going out to try and win the game rather than not going out to lose it. You know what I mean? And and that's a, a critical one. And that, therefore, he'll need to pick fast counter-attacking players and, and show some of the spirit that we showed in the second half of the last Six Nations where we, we came back at England. So I'd like to see Liam Williams at 15, Lewis Rees Samet get a game, some quick back rowers and let's see what comes. But it looks a real tall order at the moment. And we're, we're, we've got our hands over our eyes at the moment here in Wales. Well, uh, don't don't be like that. You never know. The, the <laughs> stranger things have, have happened. Mate, it's always good to speak to you. If I don't get to speak to you uh, this side of the uh, the festive season, have a good one with you and yours, will you, mate? And the same to you. All the best, Brian. Take care. Um, well, Scotland's five-match winning run is over. They lost 22-15 at home to France. They could perhaps have sneaked it, uh, certainly sneaked a draw. Uh, Gregor Townsend said he wanted them to become uh, a side that was more than just hard to beat. Um, not necessarily just this game, but uh, let's take it together, both them and France. Where do you think and how do you think they've progressed so far since they came back after the, you know, after the, after the revised season? I think both teams, you know, based on the weekend, that they're, they're definitely seeing more improvement. I think France are looking good. I think they, I don't think France have maybe improved as much. Uh, but I think we're seeing more of a consistent um, side from Scotland, a more competitive side from Scotland. And like you said, it, it could have gone either way at the weekend. Um, that how they started, in, how France started in the second half, kind of just took Scotland by surprise. I think that, that can't kick the ball straight into touch, can you? When it's the final <laughs> kick of the game. Yeah, I mean, that, those sort of errors that shouldn't be happening, certainly not at international rugby. Um, but yeah, I think both of them are looking, looking good. Some at times playing exciting rugby. I tell you what, look at me. Untermack to me, he's he's a very good fly half, and he, uh, I think Jalibert could be one. But at the moment, Jalibert is nowhere near as as uh, you know as as composed as uh, as Untermack, even though they are virtually the same age, and they're both very young <laughs> under under twenty ones. And I got the feeling as well. Again, there's a looseness about France in giving silly penalties away around breakdowns, you know, that they needn't do. You know, people off the feet not supporting the weight, blasting in, not using their arms and so on. And and they need to tighten that area up. Sean Edwards has got them in the mode of England with the hunger to do the hard work, which is not what they've always done. But there is there still is a looseness around them, in and around the breakdown, which you know, they don't if they don't cut that out, they'll just constantly keep undermining undermining themselves. And that's for that for that reason I think England is slightly in front of them at the moment. But um, in terms of where they are going on a on a on a on a trajectory towards twenty twenty three, you know, I think Fabian Galtier is a very shrewd guy, and and he's never been afraid to 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 back himself in terms of what he wants 
from from players. And if players don't uh, want to be involved in the way that he wants them, then they won't be there. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think they've both moved on. Another win for the Red Roses over France, 2-0. Two, two um, di- different game because they, <laughs> they suddenly brought eight players on and so on. Um, what, do you, uh, what do you say to this, oh, well, pros against um, semi-pros argument? Um, I think you can only play the team that's in front of you on the day. I think, you know, France, I actually spoke to some of the France players in the lead up to the game and, and their preference is to be semi-professional. They want to have um, other career prospects. Some of them are still studying and they feel that that's the way that they want to work it. Um, their sevens is actually full time. So I'm not, I don't necessarily think it's a lack of funding opportunity. That's just and let's how get this right. Think. When we're talking about England women being pro, we're not talking about massive salaries, are we? We're talking about enough, basically, like the like the grants for um, Olympic athletes to you know for you to, to, to train and focus full time. But you're not going to get rich, are you? Uh, uh, no, you're not. Uh, it's going to allow you just that. It's allowing you to to be a full time athlete. But still, some players still need to supplement. They need to find um, other jobs or uh, or have a foot in a door. Like like I was saying about France, there to have career prospects for when they leave. Because like you said, this game isn't going to make them loads of money. It's not going to have a nice bank account with lots of zeros at the end when they finish retire when they finish playing rugby. So yeah, I mean it, it's a great place to be that you've got a professional contract, but it's not it's not the <laughs> lots of zeros like many people may think. Well, the draw is out now for the uh, twenty twenty one World Cup. Um, interesting, uh, England and France have had some good clashes recently. They've been drawing the same group for the uh, World Cup alongside South Africa and Fiji. So, how are they feeling about that? I think they're going to be pretty excited about about the opportunity to play against South Africa and Fiji, not teams that we've historically played. Um, knowing of them, they're, they're huge physical teams alongside with France. And I think that the fixture on Saturday has just made that even more interesting. Last weekend, you know, 33-10 against France, everybody kind of think, oh, well, we know how that story is going to go. And then this week, you know, to, to win it just in those final moments, I think it makes it really exciting, an exciting watch. Um, and I think, you know, France will be be bitterly disappointed that they let England take that one at the weekend. And I mean, good, good for them not to be on the side... Well, they weren't going to be on the side with New Zealand, but good for them not to be there and Australia, I think. Yeah, definitely against New Zealand. Um, obviously, notorious that England and New Zealand are kind of number one in the world and and always going into World Cups as favourites. But yeah, Australia are, are up and coming, but I'd still say that France is probably more of a physical contest for them. And, and you know, if, it, if everything's to work out the way you want it, you probably want to have those most physical games that come at England v New Zealand final, you're well prepared for it. Well, they got to the uh, world number one ranking. You spoke last week to Fiona Thomas at the Telegraph about their uh, rise to that position. Um, can you identify a couple of factors as to uh, reasons for that, why that's happened? Um, I think two reasons for me. One is the fact that they're professional that they have the opportunity to train together um, full-time, rest, recover. They have really good, um, you know, off-pitch analysis, strength, all that comes with professionalism is only going to make individuals better and the team better. But I also think our Allianz Premier 15 has a huge um, amount to do with it as well. It's it's not professional, but the setup is professional, so the foundations are all in place. And week in, week out, you have pretty competitive games, Um 
no disrespect, but sometimes international games aren't even as testing as some no, of the. I mean, I, I remember when that. I remember when it started, you know, with the first uh, uh, incarnation with a Tyrrell sponsorship and so on. I'm wondering whether they'd sort out the imbalances. You know, Worcester at one point were never going to win anything, and yeah. now that's changed and so on. And uh, I think the feedback that I'm getting is, 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 as you say, the the week in week out, which is where the hardness comes to see you through games um, at international level. You know that that competition is now starting to be there. It's a long way, isn't it, from when you mentioned porter cappings <laughs> with with rats underneath them and you know and all that that sort of stuff. Here's a final comment. I'd, I'd simply say this: um, it isn't for England to scale back their efforts in terms of what they're doing with women's rugby. It's for other nations to understand that actually this is the way forward, not just because it's the right thing to do sociologically, although it is, Mm -hmm. but actually, economically, it is the right way to underpin your men's game for the long-term future of the sport as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, England, New Zealand and France are going to constantly continue to get better and you need other nations globally because otherwise the, the game won't grow globally. And, that, and I don't just mean in the women's section, as you just alluded to there. If we grow the women's game, the boys' game will grow, the men's game will grow. So it, is, it makes sense and, and hopefully you know, more nations are going to see that. Full Contact, in association with Mitsubishi Motors. Everyone's ambitions are different. You can climb to the top, or you could take on uphill battles of a different kind. You can explore for hundreds of miles, or you could begin a bigger journey. You can make time fly, or you could make it stand still. The Mitsubishi SUV range. Drive your ambition. Well, in partnership with England Rugby... Mitsubishi Motors runs a volunteer recognition programme to provide the Ruby community with opportunities to recognise and reward the volunteers who are the heartbeat of the game. Throughout the autumn, in association with Mitsubishi, I will be chatting with a selection of Ruby volunteers to hear their stories and shine a light on the brilliant work they've done during these most challenging of times. My fifth guest is Steve Granger, the Rugby Development Director at the RFU. Hello, Steve. Brian, how are you? Um, what's, when you got into this job, I, I mean, I sort of know what it is. Can you give me the um, the job spec? <laughs> well, Pre-COVID or during COVID? Well, or I tell you what, why don't you give it pre? Why don't you give it pre <laughs> and then tell me how it's changed? <laughs> okay, so in broad terms, my responsibility is for basically the, the uh, operation and growth of the community game. So everything that sits beneath the the championship in the men's game and everything that sits between beneath the Allianz Premier 15s in the in the women's game. Um, a long time ago, I sat on an ad hoc committee talking about uh, whether or not people should be paid yep. at a certain level, and I disagreed vehemently with the way that the committee took this because they said that they felt it, they could do it by hitting targets, and I said oh, all that will do is give a minimum spend permit. What's your view on, on payment of players below a certain level? Would you would you back a would you back a complete cessation of, of, of below a certain level? Well I guess, you know, the, the the horse is bolted, hasn't it? But the important thing here is that um any investment into the club it should be prioritized in, in my view in terms of the you know, the facilities, mm-hmm. the environment, 
uh, growing opportunities for more people to to, to play. So, um, you know, I, yeah, does it cause problems? Absolutely, because it tends to be short term. Um, you know, can you stop people long term um, who have ambition and hope? Maybe not. But in my view, let's make sure the facilities are, you know, first rate to attract new people into the sport, particularly the younger generation, particularly the growing number of women and girls that are coming into the game. Let's make sure we have a vibrant playing offer first in the club and that we don't literally get down to a situation where we maybe have a, you know, a one team club uh, and no opportunities for anybody else to play, which you know, we, we all know we've seen examples of over the years. Where do we stand now with the number of development officers? Because I know that there's been pressure, um, even pre-COVID, on that. Yeah, I mean, we've unfortunately through COVID, we've we've seen a um, a decrease in the number of our staff, and we've got we've got less people out on the ground than we have. Uh, that said, you know, we've still got well over a hundred uh, staff, which is more than uh, any other sport employs nationally in this country, and more than any other union in the world. So we still, you know, we still. Um, we're still in a strong place there. Uh, we're going to have to work differently. Uh, we're going to have to work differently with many of our volunteers out in the game than perhaps we had, uh, we have done over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll we'll make the most of that uh, of that change and, and and continue to try and operate and grow the game. What does that mean, Steve? Uh, work differently? Can you explain that? Well, I mean, we've we've maybe been we've been quite hands on. We've been in a position where we've. Over the last 15 years, we've had over 100 community rugby coaches centrally employed by by the union who've been able to you know, go out into schools, uh, do work in, in, in schools where it's been needed, uh, get into to clubs uh, on training nights and on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're going to have to take more of an approach going forward of, of coaching the coaches, so working a little bit more with the volunteer coaches who are there and ultimately who, who, who deliver uh, 99.99% of our game uh, through the week and on a Sunday morning and on a Saturday afternoon and on a Sunday afternoon. So um, working to support individually and in groups, those coaches, uh, perhaps a bit more virtual working than you know, maybe being in a position where you drive three hours, spend a couple of hours with somebody and drive three hours back where you can get to a lot more people working working virtually, using technology and um just adapting how we do things. See, one of the things that uh, went by the by, remember when Govery um, removed the ring fencing from the school's budget, um, sports budget, and a lot of things slipped in between because people have been doing the in-between work to to uh, take pressure off uh, teachers, uh, organising fixes and so on. I'm, I'm sure that there is a, a role for rugby to, to try and step in there because I know, for example... So one of my local schools where my, my, my two four-year-olds have just started, Fulham, uh, as a football club, they, they run all the sports. They, they, yeah. they, and they, they, don't, they don't coach them, obviously, but they do the, they do the paperwork and you know, the, 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 getting the, the coaches who are available and the, the staff who want to do it, the lazing, all that sort of stuff. So is that sort of, the sort of thing the, um, you could look to do? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we, we, we're blessed, aren't we, in rugby with a phenomenal set of volunteers at club level. And the future of local clubs uh, lies in their relationships in their local community. Yeah. 
So uh, actually, um, you know, the, 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 there'd be some parts of the country that would maybe say to us, you, you've arguably done too much maybe in the past instead of trying to build those long sustainable links that are there. If we can get um, club volunteers, if we can get people from local clubs, and it doesn't have to be highly skilled coaches, it can be the, you know, the couple of volunteers that are there every Sunday morning that are serving and making the bacon butties, that are welcoming kids when they get there, just a familiar face if we can get some of them to be linking into local schools, because we all know that, uh, you know, an eight or nine year old kid, it's, it's the familiar face that they want, somebody that's been into their school. And then when they arrive at the club on a Sunday morning, it's the same face that's there. And that's, that's what makes them welcome. And one of the great things about our clubs is they're more than rugby clubs, aren't they? They're sort of the beating heart of the local community. Rugby just happens to be played there. Mm. And I think if we can develop that, that link, that interaction, much more between the the school and the and the and the club, it's probably something that was with us thirty, forty years ago when many of the the teachers at the school locally lived locally and were involved in the local club. So mm-hmm. that link was there automatically. That that's a very different world nowadays. People tend to live further away from where they play their sport and where they. They teach, but just getting that interaction at local level has, has got to be key. Well, I've been a, a very strong advocate all the way, you know, ever since women's and girls will be started. But I, I've become even more convinced as I've dug down into this that the future of the men's game is actually will be can be underpinned by developing the women's game for all sorts of reasons, not just participation numbers, but influence at school gates and you know, influence over what male and female children do, where they pick, which, which sport they pick and so on. Um, what do you think about that sort of aspect? I agree 100%. I mean, I think um, you know, we're light years away from where we were a decade ago uh, in terms of perception of the women's game, participation in the women's game, the impact that it actually has on on a club. I mean, it's 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 hard to prove it, but you've got to have a feeling when you go around clubs that those clubs where there's a vibrant women and girls section just feels like a a stronger, more cohesive, more sustainable club. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think people are people are expecting that more and more now, aren't they? You know. Uh, Boys and girls want to be in the same environment together. Men and women want to be in the same environment to, together. And there's there's an expectation, I think, that going forward, our our clubs are offering not just social opportunities for, for both, but, but playing opportunities for both. Well, I mean, I, I've put this forward and said it's a simple economic thing. The fact is that, you know, in the southeast of England, you cannot buy a house unless two of you are working with a normal job. It's just not possible. And therefore, when it comes to Saturdays, it's a very difficult, different thing for for one of the partners to say, I want to spend all day down the rugby club, with the other saying, wait a minute, I work full-time as well. And no, you're not going to do that. We're both going to jointly look after the kids, you know, over the weekend. So there are pressures there all round. And I think dividing that up is something that, you know, people have to look at. Let me, let me talk about the specific challenges that Corvey has had. Um, a very atypical year. I'm hearing from a lot of clubs that they are trying to do bits and pieces, but they just don't know what it's going to look like when it when it comes out the other side. Have you any steer on that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, just just to reiterate what phenomenal jobs 
clubs have done since uh, since the start of lockdown in March. I mean, again, just blessed with a phenomenal army of volunteers that are out there that did a did an unbelievable job. I mean, I, I guess the only certainty at the moment is it's going to look different, isn't it, when we pop out the other side? Uh, it's it's highly likely, I think, that we're going to have to get back playing with a with an adapted game. Uh, you know, it, 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 ongoing discussions and challenges with government, but. There are clearly concerns in there about the the the, the infection risk, um, particularly in those very close contact areas. Uh, that that's fearful. If we've got to remove the scrum for a while and remove the walk mall for a while, what what does that do to uh, you know to your successors in the front row, so to speak? And that's that's a that's a concern. Key for us at the moment is just keeping an engagement between the players and the club. Uh, we've been doing some activity the last few weeks on, on Sunday mornings, uh, uh, videos and, and things that kids can do uh, via um, TV or the, or the laptop or the smartphone at home uh, because we're really conscious that it, Sunday mornings needs to be that time that kids put their jersey on and see it as rugby time and mm. it gets protected as that. A real fear is that if that moves away. Um, and, and then there's the clubhouse itself, of course. You know, the revenue-generating opportunities just haven't been there for several months now. Um, and, and, and there's fear about how that's going to look uh, long-term. Um, I mean, the RFU did well to lobby the government in the bailout package. I, you know, I, I haven't any time for people talking about post sports and whatever. It is what it is. You, you make your case. Rugby's made its case. It's done... You know, it's done well. Have you any idea whether there are part of this money is uh, is earmarked for special purposes or or generally or what? No, it's still. I mean, we've we've still got to work that through. Obviously, the money was was clearly identified in in sort of four key buckets. Um, you know, support for the the Premiership and Championship clubs who've clearly not been able to get get uh, spectators in. Um, support for the RFU who've had to cut predominantly its investment into the, the community game as a result of not having, um, well, having a very, very truncated season. And then support, really importantly, for the community clubs themselves who have lost revenue, um, A, because there haven't been international matches and you know aren't going to be, uh, certainly this side of Christmas, international matches at Twickenham. So, the, the, the revenue opportunities they would usually generate from that, from screening matches, from having people in the clubhouse, from from ticket revenue, uh, and also at local level, they've just not been able to have people there. And I think government have realised and recognised that not just have we been hit in terms of spectators here, but we've also been hit that we've just not been able to play our game. You know, yeah. we're the only team sport that that haven't been back and. Yeah, it's great that they've they've recognised that and um, can hopefully support us to get those community clubs re- reset and rebooted. Just finally, Steve, I I was I've been slightly pessimistic with my uh, outlook. Um, having spoken to people in and around the community game, um, and I'm hoping that you've got a bit more optimism uh, from your chats with them about what, when when the other side comes. Um, are we in a situation where? Okay, it won't be ideal, but most people will be surviving, and there is a uh, a real desire to get back in numbers. Or is it a bit more day, a bit more seriously? Is it a bit more pessimistic than that? 
I mean, I think September and October, um, many clubs were reporting record highs, both in terms of sort of adults training during the week, but predominantly because you know a lot of people working at home makes it easier to get to the club on a Tuesday and Thursday night, and significant numbers on a on a Sunday morning. Um, November, the lockdown in November probably couldn't have come at a worse time for us, to be honest. Um, and it's really important that if we are given permission to come back in December, that we reboot, we reboot quickly, yeah. get a few weeks of, of club activity under our belts before before the Christmas break. I I do think that the majority of our rugby clubs are really resilient, and I think our players are engaged and involved in community rugby clubs because it's more than rugby. It's about more than rugby. So I, I'm going to have to remain optimistic that they'll come back. Is it going to be simple? Are they going to come flooding back, you know, flocking back straight away? Probably not. Are we going to have to work incredibly hard to get them back? Yes. But will it be worth it? Absolutely. Steve, um, thank you for that. Thank you for recorrecting or recalibrating my optimism meter. Um, it is much better than it was. Mate, keep, keep, up, uh, keep doing the, the good work. I know it's very difficult at the moment, but it's very much appreciated. No problem at all. Thanks, Brian. Cheers. For more details about the Mitsubishi Motors Volunteer Recognition Programme with England Rugby, visit www.englandrugby.com forward slash participation forward slash volunteers. I want to touch on an article you wrote for The Independent a few weeks ago about uh, how the game is spoken about on social media. You mentioned that the success of the Red Roses is undermined because they're, they're women. What, can you explain that? What, what, why do you think that's the case? Well, the only, the only reason why I think that could be the case is because it's just very uneducated. So obviously the England women were announced um, back-to-back um, Grand Slam champions and, and social outcry of, of, you know, that nobody cares. You know, the week before I was told that I should get back in the kitchen and I can't repeat what else was said after that. And, you know, that girls rugby is like watching babies and it's and it's purely based on the fact that we're female. It has nothing to do with the skill, the athleticism, well, can I just, the ability. just put in at one point and say this? The two games uh, that, that were at Twickenham uh, just gone, there was no... I, I watched the first game and it used to be the case um, where... You would you would say about women's rugby? Yes, it is played in the same laws, but it's a different game. It's got to be appreciated as such because they're not as powerful. They don't no. kick as far and so on. And in many ways, it's better because they don't kick as much. But the 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 the, the England France game, by any metric that you choose, I thought was comparable. And you didn't have to you didn't have to make that point. And you know the the, the it's developed so far that you can go straight to it and start. I do. I go straight, I go to it and start saying that's not right. This isn't right. Should have done that. Should have done that. With no accommodation for, for gender at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and you know the the product speaks for itself. The rugby speaks for itself. And I think you're you're right there. There's a lot of stigma and um, opinions that are really outdated. And it's just through that lack of knowledge, understanding. We're never going to be as fast or as strong or as powerful as a man. Like. We cannot be, but what we can be, we can be very tactical. We can be re- highly skillful. We can play the game in our way that we want to play it. And like you say, there isn't as much kicking. So actually the ball in play is a lot more. We're moving the ball a lot more. So we have a different variety of game. And, and it was just a shame to have you know people belittle the tournament based on being a female because for some reason you know we, we haven't had to work as hard for it. Well, I mean, we talked about the brilliance of the Johnny May try, and it was. But what about the French try? 
Which one? Both of them well, were. Well, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the drift, the drift from fullback, waiting for the wing to come back inside, and then the pace on gas on the outside. Yeah, like, didn't expect that. Ellie Kildan's like a really good fullback, got real good pace as well. She's come from the sevens, and for Barnett to kind of just one little swerve in and out, and then to get her on the outside, unbelievable. But yeah, it, again, it just kind of shows the class that international rugby has. BBC done a good job recently airing the England games. Is there any more that can be done in in that respect? Um, I think more of that is really important. You know, you know, historically, Six Nations been on Sky Sports and they put it up free to air, which has been brilliant. Um, but you, we just need to have more of it available, especially in times of COVID where nobody can see games, nobody can be present. We did really well as an England side and even like at Harlequins, building up your own fan base. Um, and we need to keep that momentum. We need to keep these young girls, young boys, young families who are interested in watching the game. We need it to be visible to them. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. A huge thank you to my guest, Rachel Burford, and to all our guests today. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe and check out some of our previous episodes? And to stay up to date on all things sport, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash contact where listeners can get 30 days access to all The Telegraph's premium sports coverage completely free. But for now, it's goodbye. Full Contact, in association with Mitsubishi Motors, drive your ambition.